queer. I'm not really used to it. You know, it's no, just, I'm getting used to it. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's a long process of adaptation. It is, it is. And then it just changes. It's like, you think you're getting used to it, and then they just... Then you think you're here, and it's like, am I still here? <laughs> like, am I even here? Do I want to be here? Like, maybe I don't want to be here. Like, who's here with me? Who's like... here with me? Do I want people here? Should I call someone? Like, exactly. <laughs> should, I, should I let people know where I am to see if they can be here with me? And Would should, they want to be here with you? Would they be queer with me as well? Exactly. Or, or they're just going to be normaling up the place. And if you have to choose between someone being here or someone being, someone being queer elsewhere, what would you choose? What are those things? So anyway, welcome to oh, a new hello. episode. How are you? I hope you're good. Welcome to a new episode of Mexicats. Yes, because we're Mexican and we just fucking can't. I we just can't. Today, particularly, I can't. We, I'm Mexican even. Anywho, it's your turn to go first. Oh, yes. Let me introduce my lovely co-host, the man who keeps his impeccable music taste current by going to American Apparel and just standing there, listen, <laughs> listening and nodding his head. <laughs> I love these intros, by the way. I'm just, I'm just going to uh, say it. I'm just going to say it. Uh, anyway, uh, yes. That's me. Um, so let me introduce my co-host. Uh, he told a child his favorite animal wasn't real just to watch him cry. Oh my god! <laughs> I did this. I actually. This is Luis Augusto. Please, please tell us. Okay, so it wasn't a child. It was my sister. It wasn't an animal. It was a pop star. But it was pretty much the same thing. I remember. <laughs> I was about thirteen, so I just learned that I that hate could be my personality. So I was about 13, my sister was 11, and she had this thing with a 90s pop band, even though the, she, this was before her time, slightly. Yeah, but still. She, was, yeah, she had this thing with this 1990s pop band called Handsome, and mm-hmm. it was these three, yeah, these three blonde, very, you know, the inbreeding was evident, uh, <laughs> and they were from Oklahoma, and they were Christian, turned out later. She, she came up to me the other day, she was like, did you know they were like born-again Christians. I was like, oh, that's another thing I hate about them. But anyway. And what a surprise. (laughs) We were sitting at the table. We were having lunch. Uh, Me, It was me, my sister, my parents. And my sister was going on and on and on and on and on about the the youngest of these kids. He must have been around her age at the time because he was very little when they were doing it. They were the the pop dancers. I think his name was Taylor, but don't quote me on that. No, it wasn't. Because I, I, I remember I heard that. It was Zach. His name was Zach, because I heard this name to no end. And I was sick of that. And she would just blast this, these ridiculous songs all day. And I just discovered, like, you know, hateful music and so on. So basically, <clears throat> she, she's talking about how she's going to marry this guy. She's 11, right? I mean, she's 11-year-olds. How to put this? They're stupid, right? So she's 11 and she's like, I'm going to marry him. And our birthdays are only like six days apart. So we're going to celebrate our birthdays together as well. It's a, wor- it's a very bad idea when you're dating someone. Like, no, don't date someone whose birthday's near yours. Yes, she wasn't really thinking of the implications. Like, she was just thinking of like, exactly. having their party together or whatever. So she remember that she was 11. The party was a thing back then. It was just, no, I haven't had a birthday party in years and years and years. But anyway, sitting at the table... Lunchtime, I was just like rolling my eyes, and she was like, "Oh, and Zach, and we're gonna get married." And, so on. and then I turned to her, and just when she when she stops for air, basically, <laughs> I turned to her and I say, and I say, and I said, "You do know 
That man is going to die without ever knowing you existed. You're an awful person. She cried for four hours. You I are. remember my mother just hugging her and giving me the eye like, how could you? And I was, I was genuinely surprised because I thought she was aware of this fact. I thought she was aware of the fact that there was no way she was actually going to meet this guy and actually going to fall in love with him and actually going to marry him. But she was 11. You know, it's a thing you believe when you're... When I was 11. I was 11 once. I wasn't that stupid. Well, I think I'm being defensive because I was that stupid at 11. And probably with a fictional character, too. It was like, of course I'm going to meet Ryu from Street Fighter. At least my sister knew she lived in the same reality as her crush. (laughs) So, yeah, I made made a child. Well, you know, I'm just thinking at some point the world will collide and, you know, the multiverse is going to become one. And I'm going to be in a relationship with both Wolverine and Gambit at the same time. Logan and Remy. How is that even going to work? That sounds that sounds like domestic abuse, like a recipe for domestic abuse, if ever I heard. Well, I never said I wanted healthy relationships when I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And now you're getting to know us. Yeah, see, this is why we get along. This is cheaper than therapy and there's drinks. So there yes. you go. So anyway, uh, how you been? I've been good. I've been really good. I loved your show last week. It was so good. It was so funny. It was so funny, especially when you forgot that line and everyone was just Don't like... Jinx it. <laughs> everyone was just like, what went wrong? And I was like, oh my God. And you know, like the stage just came on down. Yeah, no, it was... No, no, it was a, it was a good The show. guys from Hanson were like there just going like, what the fuck? My sister was there just crying like, please notice me. Like, it was just... <laughs> I'm just blocking her. I'm just like, no, you can't meet him. He's like, no, 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 no. Cry. The world is awful. Yeah, the world Doom. is awful. Why Doom. do you even have dreams? Like, what is the exactly. point? Who, who can be bothered with a dream when you can be bothered with well, a But, like, think about it. So, if we didn't have dreams, what would you laugh at when they didn't come true? The pain of other people. You had that answer really ready. It's, 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 I thought I was going to stump you, but no. No, no. no, I, no, no, shan't, no. I shan't be stumped. I shan't be stumped. But yeah, good shows last week. I think we're doing really well. We're becoming exactly. good comedians. I'm starting my foray into insult comedy. Yeah. Yes. I'm actually kind of excited for that. Because I think you would... I For some reason, I think you would be a good insult comic. <laughs> I don't know why. I just, I, it's, just, it's just hanging out with you that's making me... But it's so hard. Like, think about how to write insult comedy, because, like, stand-up comedy is essentially, at least the way you and I understand it, because we have very similar, even though we have very different uh, comical personas, we do have fairly similar structural approaches to stand-up. So we're both very, you know, anecdotal and very, you know, let me tell you this story, and let me just throw some jokes in, but it's not like, have you ever noticed that white people drive like this and black people drive like this? (laughs) It's, It's just, it's not really observation in the sense of... You know, just these disjointed, ill-observed yeah. things. Like the first just... time you told like the story about your... Like, it's, this happened to me, and I'll make it funny to you, even though if it wasn't funny. This happened to me, and maybe it didn't happen to you, but something must have happened to you that reminds you of this thing. And if the story yeah. is rich enough, it doesn't really matter if they haven't gone through it, they'll, they'll get it, yeah? So this is both Martin and I's approach to... Um, to comedy. And then when you write insult comedy, it's so difficult because you, you depend so much on audience input, whether it is the things they say or the things they do or how they look or whatever, their voice even. But it's so hard. It's so hard. Like, oh, last week I was at this um, 
open mic here in Mexico City. It's this new concept that they're having, which is the tomato open mic. The oh, right. Idea, the yeah. idea is um, it's invite only because they want to be elitist about it. Although it wasn't really an invite because I was I just texted uh, Ana Julia, wonderful Mexican comedian, by the way. If you, if you speak Spanish and you have some time in your hands, Ana Julia Yeye, like... Anna and Julia and Yeye, like Y-E-Y-E, accent on the last E, like tilde. You can find it without the tilde. Anna Julia, she's a fantastic comedian. She's the host. And I just literally just texted her, like, can I go? And she was like, yeah. And I was there. And the idea is you have to to last for five minutes. And if you start to bomb, they they pelt you with balls. Yeah, they don't have actual tomatoes there, but they have, like, those, like, ball pit balls. You know, they're hollow. They're not, you know, they're they're not going to... They're not going to hurt They're anyone. They're not meant to injure anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you did tell a story about that, about the girl who said, uh, I'm mostly vegetarian. That's exa- Oh, I told that story already. Can yeah. We, can we edit this out? Because my memory is dreadful. But yeah, veg- did I say it here or did I tell it I to think you? you said it. I think you told it to me. Okay. So I'm just going to tell it again. And if I've already told it, then we can just remove Fine. it from it. So, um, yeah. So basically, um, all these comedians are just... Just, just bombing and doing terrible and terribly, terribly. And then it's my turn. And then this girl, when Ana Julia was doing her hosting thing, she asked if there were, there were any vegans in the house. And then this girl raised her hand and very confidently said, I'm a vegetarian. I mean, I eat fish, but I'm a vegetarian. And nobody said anything. And I was like, somebody has to do something about this. And, and I was that somebody. So it was my turn next. And I go up, go up on stage and I spent what was probably two minutes just shitting on her. Like, just going like... I, I don't know exactly what I, what... I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something along the lines of, you know, I don't know if you went to preschool, where most of the syllabus is fruits, vegetables, and animals. But fish is no fruit. And I was like... And, and I told her, like, I like to think that your parents knew that you had this cognitive dissonance here, but they just let you go on with your life. So you're just, like, drawing sardine trees. And they were like, this is our daughter. And everyone was laughing. And I was like, maybe I can use insults for comedy. Like, I never I never really thought about it. It was like, I'm going to try. So I'll, I'll let you guys know how it goes. Yeah, I love that. Um, I don't I, I, I do do insults, but I, I do... Like, when you set up... Uh, Getting the audience involved. I think it's really cool when you get the audience involved because it means that each show has its own kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, no, it's really cool. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I root for, I root for you and I look oh, forward you. to thank seeing you insult a whole audience. Well, I'll let you know how it goes. It, 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 it's tough. It's I'm tough. I'm going to try some of it when I, when I do. I did a bit of that, uh, last, uh, the show that we did at American Legion. When I did this thing, which was just improvised, where I was talking about the me- the imperial system and the metric system, yes. and, so and it was like because Americans love to do the conversion when they when they can when they can do basic math they love to show, <laughs> they love to show it off. So it's like, does anyone know how much eighty five kilos is in pounds? And this guy goes like, it's a hundred and eighty. And I was like, no. The correct answer is nobody give a fuck. <laughs> nobody give a fuck. Stop using that system. It's literally you and three islands in the Pacific. That's the only countries that are using this right now. I mean, it's just like Bible times, measuring things in elbows, you know. It's just like, <laughs> now his heart it, has to be 900 elbows long, so speaketh God. It's, just, it's insane. <laughs> I hate it. Anyway, uh, so our Mexican stereotype for the day is... Mexican maids. Mexican maids or Latino maids. Latino maids. I mean, here most maids are Mexican. Here we just call them maids. You know, just, <laughs> we don't really 
Uh, yeah, Latino. But there is, there, 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 I mean, in in a lot of uh, let's say American-made media, there the the maid character is either Latin, like Mexican, or you know from somewhere uh, below the border. Unless they're rich, because have you noticed, like in the U.S., like the ultimate income bracket that people aspire to is having a white English help person, of course, like a maid or a butler. Like just just the richest people yep. like, have a white like. My privilege is so high; it's above other people of my same skin exactly, color. Exactly, exactly. Like the white chauffeur and yes. the white like the white chef. Yeah, so racism, fun. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, <coughs> it's funny. And some people are like, "Yeah, he's white, but he's Irish." He's Irish. He's Irish. <laughs> you know, it's just throw a potato, you'll see how he chases it. You know? <laughs> so anyway. um... But, yeah, I mean, do you have any examples that you find particularly either appalling or funny? Of the, the maid? Mm-hmm. The Mexican maid? Okay, so, basically, um, here's the thing, and if you haven't been to Mexico, and if you haven't, you haven't seen a lot of Mexican, this is a big, like, a big part of my stand-up is talking about race in Mexico. Because most people will talk about race in Mexico, oh, how to put this mildly, being racist cunts themselves. And Mexico has still a lot to learn from the States, even though you have the president that you have and whatever. We still have so much to learn, I believe, from the States. Because you still get people standing up and saying, I really don't think you should joke about that. Because there is this thing, I think, my my stand-up teacher, my first stand-up teacher said, you have to look at a joke as an economic phenomenon. Who was your first Gloria Rodriguez. Okay. And she says... You cannot make fun, or you shouldn't make fun, of those who are below you. Those who have more vulnerability, or, you know, so basically... Don't punch down. Here in Mexico, we don't give a fuck about that. So if a man is going to start making fun of how women get no jobs, he'll do it and he'll get the laughs. He will get the fucking laughs. And then you have people who will say, oh yeah, brown people, they're so poor, and the laughs just come in. It's like, ha ha ha, so funny. And I don't like that. So the first first long uh, bit that I wrote was me shitting on white people for 10 minutes, and I loved it. And people loved it and I had people approach me and said I've never heard someone talk that way about white people um, and I'm like that's that's the point that's why I'm doing it because here in Mexico we still love whiteness so much so if you go on TV and if you look at the telenovelas and everything the only brown characters the only genuinely you can tell Native American you know genetically speaking Native American people that you will see are the maids and the chauffeurs and the gardeners. Maybe, maybe you'll get a teacher if the school is not particularly up class. So it's essentially the assisting characters are all coded brown and everyone else... And the way they talk, the way they dress, the way... (laughs) It is totally coding a certain type of brownness. Absolutely. So actually, it makes me really mad. It makes me really, really mad because it's like... um, and we're going to talk about this when we get into our topic later, but it's like the idea of having someone be successful and obviously indigenous, uh, you know, with indigenous background, with an mm-hmm. indigenous background. It's just indigenous, by the way, is the way we uh, we call Native Americans here in Mexico. It's the same, the same idea. It's just... Um, I think that's the way they call it over there too. <laughs> indigenous? Indigenous, because that's what the word I've means. Heard, well, yeah, but I, usually what I hear is, yeah, but usually I see like, my grandfather is Native American. I've never yes. heard an American person say, my grandfather is indigenous. Well, yeah, of course. Well, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you on that. So I don't know. Maybe I have it wrong. So, yeah, but, but the, thing, the thing, and you mentioned in your stand-up, which I like, is before you came here to Mexico, you didn't, because 
Luis Augusto is you, you lived in Peru for a while. I, I lived no, in no, Peru. No, 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 no. I was born in Brazil. Yeah. But the thing you notice, because no, that's the thing is that you said like in your house you never had uh, a maid. No, never. Uh, and that's a completely different experience <coughs> from mine because, like, my grandmother on my mom's side had always had two living maids at least. My grandmother on my father's side couldn't really afford a maid. And in my house, like, and, and my mom worked, but it does so, it does happen in, in, in houses where the mom is a stay at home mom. Uh, we, she always had someone that helped her. Uh, and they do call her, like, you will never, you, you will rarely hear, uh, the word maid thrown around. Uh, they will say more like, uh, the woman that helps me. Or a girl. Oh, exactly. La muchacha. This is the most common word. Exactly. Word. And it's like, and you know, they, you know, they, they don't get paid too well. And in, and in some cases, they don't pay. Like, it's essentially slave labor in many, many cases. Yeah. It's changing lately. Like younger people right now, people, Martin's age and my age, uh, we are a bit more, you know, way more socially conscious. And we're like, you know, you can't just yeah. pay slave wages to these, to these women. Totally. Um, and, but it is very much a, like, for as much as we complain and they, and people, especially like more Latino like near the border activists complain about how the stereotype of the maid and the stereotype of, and you know, the way, uh, Latino people are treated when they work as, as maids in, in American households, the way, uh, a lot of Mexican people treat the people that they say are helping them, uh, is just really bad. Probably worse. I would say. Yeah, probably. I mean, they get the pay. The pay is really low. The pay is really low. Let's start with that. I mean, it's just—it's not uncommon to hear a you know a woman working an entire day for what is essentially what ten dollars, fifteen dollars, like for yeah. pay. So you know, for, for ten hours. And, and then you know, you have these people who will not have one kind word to say about anyone who works that. Like they—they they're all thieves. They're all out. You know, like if they ask for a day off, they're like lazy, lazy, you know. And of course, you know, these, these are, you know, these are women with families. So like for like certain things like your know, Mother's Day or something like that, they will ask for a day off because they want to spend it with their family. Of course. And they're, and you know, you have people saying really awful things like, no, they, they, it's, it's a really dehumanizing way of referring. And this is, and, and this is not me excusing it, by the way. I just want to let you guys know that it's inherited from, here's the thing. Um, on the one hand, good news, the Spaniards that came and conquered Mexico, they had a very specific policy of let's not kill everyone. Yeah. And that's why you get so many peoples who have lasted, which have lasted for so yes. long. However, they did institutionalize what is literally a caste system where it was all about where you were born and your parents were born. It was essentially, uh, you know, institutionalized racism. So the higher ups were the peninsula Spaniards. So basically people who were born, genuinely born in Spain. And then you had the sons and daughters of peninsula Spaniards. And then you had the mestizos, the mixed, you know, the, the, the half, uh, half European, half indigenous people. Yeah, right. And then you have the indigenous uh, peoples and then yeah, the, indigenous the, the, the African. Mixed. And the thing is, uh, they also, like you say, the system, they even had a name of, if you know, like white, like Peninsula Spanish marries, uh, you know, someone of this kind. And they had words for every kind of mix, quote unquote. Uh, and yes, as you say, we're, we're dragging this to this day. Like, I, I, I think that one, one thing, um, 
people don't understand is that sometimes people say that the, the thing here in Mexico is less a race thing and more a class thing. Bullshit. Uh, yes. But no, but, and you know, I'm like, and I'm like, you know, surprisingly, it can be both. Uh, in both the and US. Very and very frequently it is. That's and, and it is. Uh, like, the racism here in Mexico is at the same time very similar to the racism in the US and at the same time very different. Like you say, because there's, the, like, the, 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 we didn't have, like, the white people here didn't come here and just kill everyone. So there was a lot of mixing. And there wasn't slavery. It was... Yeah, in not... The, in the literal sense in of the, the word, the Spanish government, exactly. when it was the um, the viceroyalty of yeah. the new Spain, it was very... It was... Since the beginning, they were like, no slaves. Like, indi- the indigenous peoples cannot be made into slaves. They solved this problem by bringing people from Africa. <laughs> you know, this was... A, yes. it was It was a very... It was a terrible time. And we still... Even in the, you know, way, you know, well into the 21st century, we're still carrying that. And you still get people, and this is genuinely true. You get people who will say, without the slightest hint of shame, they'll say, I do hope you marry a white girl because we wouldn't want to stain our bloodline. I know. Say this. In broad daylight, nobody will throw a brick at them. It's It's disgusting. It makes me want to vomit. And, and even though, as you say, the, the younger people are on one hand, like, being more, like, you know... The, you know. Some young people. Some, exactly. Let's, let's not forget the privilege that we've had of a university education. Exactly. We've, 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 uh, but even, like, people with a university, sometimes they're yeah. just, like, like also, like, never. But what I was saying, what I was saying is that uh, uh, because of the same thing of being so similar, but at the same time different, like, uh, I think there's this thing where people are trying to copy the same... A sort of ideas against racism we get from uh, a medium US, which is mostly racism that's uh, directed against black people, which again was a, was a race that was completely enslaved and completely um, marginalized and yeah. and and, they, and segregated. Segregated. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and it's not we since the problem isn't the same. It's not going to be solved the same way. So I mean, I do think that the media influence in Mexico has raised certain sensitivities you know people do become but the thing is it's still there's still so much to do like i've i've seen people who are like they're not racists in their everyday life and they'll still gleefully laugh at a very openly racist joke and a joke that is not even meant to observe something because this is a conversation that martina and i have I've had many, many times, and I think we, we should dedicate a program to political correctness in here because we have slightly different views in political correctness, but still... I'm writing that He's in writing the... it down, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the thing is that racism is so internalized here yeah. that people don't even recognize it as racism sometimes. In the US, there is at least a conversation going on all the time in the mainstream media. You turn on CNN or you open the New York Times or you open... And even if, you know, even if you get assholes like Milo Yiannopoulos or Ben Shapiro, these cunts saying, oh, no, but, you know, the black man is there because he wants to be there, but whatever. There's still a discussion about race. And that means people will have opinions about it. Here, people don't have opinions about it. They just take it for granted. They're, they're starting to. Uh, and it's difficult and people don't want to because, you know, ignorance is bliss. Uh, even though sometimes it takes a lot of work. Uh, yeah. People will just not want. But, uh, no, but uh, I I think it's, it's starting to happen more. 
And we just keep on, we just try to keep on pushing. And we just love whiteness in this country. Like, they do. do. And to the point where I get really annoyed at several uh, comedians who are very much brown. And they identify as white. Either they identify as white or they are just like, they will come on stage and be like, you know, well, this they, they say this thing is racist, but I'm totally cool with it. Like, I'm one of the cool brown people. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to get angry if you call me whatever. No, like, only the other day, I was having a conversation with a few comedians and we talk about racism because I, I ruined the discussion, you know, so I, I, I'm that guy. Killjoy. Um, and this guy goes, like, you know, and he says, like, we talk about racism and he goes, you know what? I accept it. I am a racist. And I'm like, first of all, he is not white. He is very obviously a mix. He is very obviously a mix. And this is not me discriminating against him. This is me having eyes. I've, I have eyes and I have been with many kinds of people and I can identify. And then he was just, but, but I'm a racist. I just don't like them. I think they're ugly and I think they're blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you can't say that. Like, how can you just... But, but this is why they say it, because in here in Mexico... Racism is a mark of status. status. Uh, so, like, you again, you're not going to go to your white friends and be like, you shouldn't be. No, all the cool kids are racist. Exactly. So, it's that. Uh, we're going to save more of this conversation for another episode. Because oh yeah. it's been going, this is going to be, this has been our longest Mexican stereotype. Well, yeah. So, Mexican maids, we have them. You guys have them. They get paid really terribly. And here we just basically, they're the. They're a punchline. They're a walking yes. punchline. But their people, the char- their characters are getting like, you know, elaborated and it's it's good to see in several places that they get to be, be more complex characters, more complex human beings. Uh, and speaking of that, there is this movie that was nominated to the Oscar, directed and written by a Mexican director. It won the, the Oscar. It won for Best, best Foreign Film, right? Best Foreign Film. It went for Best Director? Yes, best director as well. And best cinematography for Cuaronto. Yes. Um, Roma. Roma is named after the neighborhood in Mexico City called La Colonia Roma, which, which always been like a, you know, it, it's, it's one of the older neighborhoods. It's always had, uh, well-to-do families. Now. It used to be a very working class neighborhood back when there used to be a middle class in Mexico City because you have to understand something. Like, Economically speaking, Mexico City is not Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's a whole other animal. And during the uh, 50s and 60s and 70s, Mexico City went through this developmental boom. You know, mm-hmm. just it, it began growing. And so the working class became more uh, economically powerful. So you had working class families who had, uh, you know, the tiny car and a house. And it was, a, it was not uncommon for a working class to own Houses like actual proper houses totally. with many bedrooms and so on. Roma now is a whole other animal. How is Roma now? It's starting to get known in a more as a more hipster neighborhood. It's starting to. It's a super hipster neighborhood. It's where all the hipsters live, even yes. though the buildings will. And they're all renting. They're all renting. Millennials walking around like they rent the place. Well, yes. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Roma is now this very fancy neighborhood. It's beautiful. If you come to Mexico City. It's one Lots, of those very posh restaurants, very posh galleries. No, very the, posh. the buildings themselves are gorgeous. Like, well, the, the, this is a thing I know, but uh, from uh, an architecture <laughs> class I took, but uh, the whole the whole feel of the neighborhood was very Art Nouveau. Yes, uh, very and, European influence. Yes, um, and in this movie, so this movie Roma is named after that neighborhood. 
but also Cuarón, of course, is banking on the fact that there's a city named Roma, Rome. Uh, so it's also about this very kind of old dramatic cinema. And Roma is about, uh, Cleo, who happens to be, uh, one of two living mates for this very well-to-do family, uh, who are the, in which the parents are about to go through, uh, divorce. Um, and what you see in this movie is how, how they, they have this very, um, you know, they, they, they have what in here in Mexico we call the cuarto servicio, which is, um, the service room. So it's, it's, it's where they live. It's a really, it's a tiny bedroom. Usually it's just one bedroom with everything there. So you have the bathroom, you have a little, like a little kitchenette, you have the beds, yeah. and it's basically just where they are going to be there for the, for the night, and the rest of the day they're going to be doing the whole, taking care of the house. They, they get up before the rest of the family to do, to do the, to make breakfast. Um, they start, you know, they take care of the kids, they're usually they the nannies. They take care of the dog. Exactly. Um, and the story of Roma is of Cleo, uh, having an, having a, a lover, uh, becoming pregnant, uh, this while, uh, the, 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 the couple she works for are, are getting a divorce. And this is in the seventies where divorce wasn't, uh, as, as common maybe. Yeah. And how she, she is both a part of this family, but also outside looking in. I think, okay, we should, first, I think we should talk about what the movie is and then what it did to Mexico, because yes. it's been a phenomenon, but let's just start with it. Okay, so it's a story, it's definitely, it's a slice of life story, it does have little elements of magical realism, as all Mexican fiction has, um... Alfonso Cuaron obviously draws upon his usual symbolism. He uses a lot of reflections, a lot of water, beautiful camera work, very smooth camera motions showing you the, you know, uh, the, the most iconic shots probably are this, these shots where the camera is panning in a circle all around the house and you get to see uh, Cleo turning off the lamp and, uh, you know, cleaning up yeah. the table and clearing some dishes. and so Which the- gives the movie this air of domesticity, this air of this is this is you looking at you like managing to be a fly on the wall for this family and also it gives you the idea of how repetitive and long the days are so it's just she's doing this and you get the idea she does this every single day this is her life and you have and she has a very close relationship uh, with the both the the um, the mistress of the household, should we say, the, uh, the the mother of the kids and the um, the children. So she has a close relationship with, with with everyone, and they really like her. And you can tell that there is genuine appreciation, and that is something that um, some American households might get this. But like the relation, the the family relationship that some of my friends, some even some of my friends have told me they had with their maids is very 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 close you know it's a very like they 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 can some of my friends consider themselves raised by these women of course then they don't really send money home you know (laughs) for their mother to see if she's okay how's that knee going they don't do that either so you can see that cleo is living this halfway life of they consider her a human being but they also don't they consider her important but they also don't so it's this yeah there's there's a very good scene in which you know they're watching tv as a family 
And yeah, Cleo is welcome to watch the TV with the family, but she's also expected to get up and do whatever. You know, if anyone wants a soda or wants whatever, they... Her day is not done. Exactly. The family is resting at the end of the day. She doesn't get to rest. And then she, you know, it touches upon all these little... Because Cuaron is very good at... Uh, the panoramic view of something. So he gives you little bits and pieces of everything. So she, he shows you how she is with the family. She, he shows you how she is in her free time when she's, when they're not looking and she, she is sexually active. She has a lover. She becomes pregnant. She has her own choices to make. Um, should we spoil the movie? Like most people have seen it already. Right? Yeah. This is hashtag spoiler alert after okay. this, please. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to start spoiling the movie now. So it's just, Fair warning. Uh, so basically, she gets pregnant and she goes into this crisis and she tells she tells her mistress, you know, and her mistress is all like, oh, uh, the, I remember the first reaction is, oh, you're so stupid. You're so stupid. Such a stupid yeah. girl. Treating her like a child and treating her like... She that's a, is a child, though. What is she, like 16, 17? No, she's, she, she is, she's, uh, she's older than that. Yeah? But it's also um, infantilizing. That's what I was going yes. for. It's very much... Because, you know, a, a lot of the attitudes of uh, the, you know, white people and upper class people towards people of uh, lower class and people who are brown and is to infantilize them, to be like, oh, you wouldn't know this. <laughs> like, you don't understand how the world works, yes. whatever. Um, and that's the way she, the, 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 the matriarch, if you will, re- reacts to the news of her being pregnant. And yet at the same time, she does take her to a private hospital. She does like, she does give her a treatment that you are clearly seeing is not the same treatment everyone else gets. Yes. Like, it, the, the thing where like, you know, and you will see when people got defensive on the, uh, about this movie, it's like, oh, but you know, she did go to the, because where she takes her, it's the public health uh, hospital. She does, yeah, no, that's right. It's public it, health but uh, but she's treated better because she's not one of the masses that comes to the private to the public you health hospital. You can see hospital. that she, the mother knows the doctor, and she's like, take care of her. So she does get, you know, these scraps of status exactly. that come from the family sharing the status with her. And I think genuinely, the characters are meant to care for her, which is part of the source of controversy, you know, the idea of it was essentially a white saviour story, mm-hmm. except except that it's a familiar <clears throat> it's a familiar situation for many people. Like a lot of people like um I've heard stories of like uh families and this is genuinely true, families who will pay for the university education of these maids or who will pay for, or the, for their uh, children. Or for their children. Like there's a lot of families who will genuinely share their status with these maids. And there's a lot of families who won't. Let's not forget that most of these mm-hmm. maids get treated horribly. This maid has a special place and the, the movie sell, sells this, you know, tells us that this is a special place and this is not representative. But because Cuaron based the family on his own family and his own life, then the, it begs the question, are you presenting you and your family to be better than you actually were? And a secondary question, could we as, and I will include myself there with Cuaron, could we as white people white, privileged, educated people ever looked at a phenomenon like this with without bias? Is it even possible? Okay, uh, answering your first question, or rather, I think one, one very good thing about this movie is that it places 
uh, Yalitza's character, Cleo, for, in the center. It, this is her story. It, she's not in the periphery. This is... Uh, I've never seen something like that, by the way. I've, uh, maybe no, here in my... And, and, and done in this way, because it's usually done... Uh, you know, very in a very, again, very problematic, very infantilizing way in which it's the white person imagining how this person is so grateful and, and has no life outside their family. But in this case, no, she does have a life outside. She has preoccupations <coughs> outside. You know, she has uh, several, several scenes in which the family has, n- has nothing to do. She uh, has a personality. She has flaws. Yeah, she, she has, she has these little moments with the other, uh, with the other girl. Uh, who works with her in that house? Uh, they like they, they you know at the end of the day they go they go upstairs and they have like live, they, they do exercises and again it's not just the fantasy of the character even though it kind of is because it ends up you know uh, it's really cool that Quaron wanted to tell uh, that story. Uh, some people have complained that maybe what he should have done was producing was produced a, you know someone else telling their own story. Uh, he didn't want to do that. So he, so that's what he did. Um, but yeah, he did put her as, you know, she has agency. She, and, and, you know, as far as she can, she chooses to do or not to do. Yes. And in the end, like the, even though you could say she is a victim of circumstance and the way that she becomes pregnant and she didn't want to become pregnant, but she, the, the sex scene between her and, or not the sex scene, but the sex itself between her and her lover is portrayed as uh, being from both of them. It's not her being just courted, but she actually no. goes after him as well. So it's this, it's these little glimpses into something that if you have a maid, you don't really get to see. You don't really get to see your maid as someone strong or flawed or uh, sexual or uh, even sexy and erotic, you know, and there's, it's a very tasteful, the way her, the way her character is handled, I think it's tasteful. Not without its problems, but I will say it's tasteful. And then the spoiler that we were warning you about is, uh, she, uh, she has a miscarriage. Well, it's not a miscarriage, actually. The, the, the baby exactly, dies no, she, in childbirth, right? Exactly. Yeah. He, he, the baby dies, and it turns out to be a girl, if I'm not mistaken. She yes. dies at childbirth. And at first, you kind of don't get if she, like, how affected she is or not. By, like, the family is very, like, in, immediately, they're like, we should go on a vacation because so you could, like, you know, but quote, unquote. If you remember, live. they don't go on a vacation just for her. It's no. kind of like, because everything gets to a, boils to a head because her husband, you know, the, the wife, this wonderful scene, her, what's the name of the actress who does the, the wife? Marina de Tauda. She does this wonderful scene. Everything else is completely forgettable about her, but she does this amazing scene. Uh, you have this um, running gag, if you will, of the car, the, the man, the, 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 her husband has this car. It's a, I remember it because it's a Ford Galaxy. Beautiful car. Uh, Ford Galaxy. And... It barely fits into the driveway. garage, yeah, into the into the driveway because it's so narrow. And most driveways here in Mexico are indoor. You know, yeah, so it's it, it's it's like between two concrete walls. It's not a. It's not like oops, uh, the wall's gone. No, yeah. it's oop. Your car is now missing a piece. And it's obviously a commentary on the Mexican middle class or upper middle class. The idea that they want more than they that can actually fit into their house. So the car is the symbol of. 
for me at least, for me it's very obvious. You know, the car is a symbol of they are buying things that they, they or they're aspiring to things that are beyond them and they don't really need. So the car is very cumbersome. The guy, you know, the, the husband just goes in and it's beautiful because the you never see his face. It's all just the car, like, and then the, the mirror is kind of like nicked a little bit and so on. And then he, like, really with a lot of difficulty, just steps out of the car and so on. And there's this wonderful scene when she's finally, I mean, we don't even know what happened, but she's realized that she's getting, her marriage is over and she gets home drunk, driving the car and she just crashes into, into the pillars and into everything that just trashes this car. She does not car. give a fuck. Yeah, she just trashes this car and gets out of the car and then, uh, Cleo just walks up to her and is like, are you okay? And she goes, we're alone. And she just answers, we are always alone. And she's having this meltdown. And it's such an interesting thing because at the same time you empathize with this woman. I mean, in the end, she is still a woman living in this time. She is hopeless at this point in her life. So you can't just say, ah, you know, rich people have no problems. But rich people have problems. But in, at the same time, you've no, you know what, what Cleo is going through. And you end up looking down on the boss... Mm. Going like, oh, come on. I mean, you're getting a divorce, but like, she's got problems. Claire's got problems. Like, yeah, and, yeah, and that's another thing. Like, a lot of people dislike that character, the mom character. Uh, I didn't. Not really. I mean, did you? A lot. Of, I, I had no problem with her. Uh, I think I, you know, she, she's not, she's painted as, you know, as a problematic character. She is, you know, because she, you know, she does love her family and, and everything, but she's, you, you can also tell that, you know, she was, uh, you know, again, she has this racism, which, you know, all of Mexico has. Yeah. And she, she also had this, you know, women live, you know, they, they, especially in, in the seventies in Mexico, they very much had everywhere the message of, you know, you are as worth as the relationship you are in. You know, yes. you, you know, even if women's liberation wasn't that far away. And even if, of course, she as a, as an upper class woman, she was probably educated and, you know, it's not like she was going to like not do anything. Uh, but, it, but, it, but still, you know, she had a university education. It's yeah. revealed later on. She's going to get a job. She's going to start exactly. working again. Yeah. But that's not, you know, that's not what people, you know, people see that and it's like, Oh, you got a divorce and you have to work now. That's awful. Uh, it's not like, wow, she's, you know, doing it. You know, she's, yeah. So no, she's meant to and, be, and, and, and you were saying, that. you know, that the trip in which they end up going, it's not because of, of, of Cleo, but rather, rather, uh, they need to be out of the house so the dad can take out of, of his things. Mm -hmm. And also what better thing to have in your trip with your children than a nanny. Yeah. Uh, although she's not necessarily treated as a nanny during the trip. Like you, you see her, uh, she sits at a restaurant with them, which brings us to something that happens here in Mexico a lot. The maids don't eat with the household. The maids are sent to eat elsewhere. Of course. And then while they're on holiday, they sit at a table together for the first time. So you can see, I'm not saying, oh, everything's better now. And, you know, absolutely not. There is still a status of difference. Course. But you can see that the family is reconfiguring. You can see that, the, you know, um, Cleo is, you know, and this is after she has the miscarriage. So, not the miscarriage, I called it a miscarriage again, after her baby dies. And so during the holiday, you can see that both these women ha going, having gone through these crises or going through these crises are sort of reflected on each other, but they never actually even have a conversation. 
they never actually have a conversation where they say what they feel. Which I think also goes back to the to the character of the mom. I think the character wouldn't know, wouldn't think she could have a com- again when when a problem comes in. You know, she's not like, oh, we need to talk about this. She she takes this very uh, again. She infantilizes her. It's like you're so stupid. You know, it's like it does feel like it's a 16 year old girl getting pregnant yes. and telling her mom. Uh, but it isn't. It, it, it is. What she's worried about is she's gonna lose her job. And it turns out she doesn't, she not only does not lose her job, like, the, the mother is very, very clear on the fact that you can stay here, mm-hmm. this is your place. They actually, she buys her a crib. That's when, when she goes into this. Into yeah, they go, room. yeah, they. I don't know if it would be medically a miscarriage. Maybe there's a doctor here who's like, it wasn't a miscarriage, but it wasn't a. I'm pretty sure that's a very born. specific word. I think it's stillbirth. Yeah, like, it was stillborn, a stillborn child, like, everything was okay with the pregnancy, and then, because that's the other thing, Guadon does like to give us history lessons, and I think that's valuable in its own way. Um, he talks about this, um, this... Student uh, uprising. Student, yeah, student uprising, and the group, the paramilitary group that was, uh, by the way, hello CIA, if you're listening, that was uh, <laughs> trained by the CIA. And now we're on a watch list. And now we're on a watch list. Well, you know... Whatever, like CIA has done whatever they fucking wanted with this country anyway. Um, no, totally, and and that's a sort of amazing thing that happens. Usually, um, this isn't this is something I had I mean, done with Mexican history for, in which you had a like a historical event, but you didn't focus on explaining it, but rather the historical event was on the background, or, or it was the official version, you know, because this was the seventies, and back yeah. then there was this. Um, there was a single party system, essentially what it was. Yes. It was a dictatorship, although we did change presidents yeah. as well. But I, I meant more film-wise, like right. like here in Mexico, we haven't had that many like historical films, and usually they're like melodramas. But in other countries, they have had this thing where it's historical fiction, and it's set uh, in the in the frame of a larger historical event that was really important. Yes. Uh, sort of like, uh, you know, Jack and Rose and Titanic. Which the is, help, you know, is just, exactly. and you get like, it's what's going on. Like, it's this, it's a very, it happens in, with historical fiction in America. They, the directors and the writers, the screenwriters, they usually take the time to remind you mm-hmm. what is going on in the rest of the world. And in the they call this well. uh, bottom down history, which is yeah. a history seen from the people. From, from, from yeah. Exactly. Not from the people, from the movers and the shakers as a child. Exactly. Um, so we, we don't have really a tradition of historical cinema here. Like we don't have a tradition like, of cinema. <laughs> no, well, we do have a tradition of cinema, but we don't no, we have do. like, we do. like the US has Selma. Yeah. But in the end, after the stillbirth and one of the more emotional scenes, uh, big reveal. Yeah. Is, she like she stays with the kids. They go to this beach. Uh, they tell don't go into the don't go too far. Into, she mentions that she can't swim. She can't swim. Yeah. Um, and they get told you know don't go too far in because she can't swim. They do mention the the, the mar the the mar the sea. Uh, the mar. The mar. The mar and the playa. The it's mar just... is picado. Yeah. Uh, the, the sea <laughs> that the sea the is, sea is chopped. <laughs> that the sea is what's the word? Rough. Rough. Yeah. Thank you. They go into the into the sea because children the water, are, yeah, because children the, are stupid. Children are stupid. This is our running <laughs> gag. Children are stupid, and they will have and, no self-preservation instincts. And Cleo, being a woman that cannot swim, goes into the ocean and Rescue, rescues yeah, them. Rescues them. And after that, <laughs> she says she wanted to. She did not want the child. She did not want the child. 
And I really like uh, uh, an essay by uh, Slavoj Žižek who said that the reason why she didn't want, like one of the, what you could argue, the reason why she didn't want the child was because she did not want to shake the status quo. You know, not having a child means she gets to stay in the space she's in without having to see the obvious difference between uh, her child and the family's children. Uh Really? She gets, she, yeah. I'm not sure I agree. And I think, uh, please. No, it's just, I'm please. not sure I agree because, like, everything, like, everything she hears is just, like, you can stay here, everything's going to be okay, like, you're going to, like, the, the children are implied to be attending public school. Like, they, they wear this very traditionally public school kind of uniform and so on. So it's not like... Um, she basically, she has been reassured that everything is going to be okay. I think that Guaron is trying to tell us a story of a woman who has her own mind, a woman of her own mind, even working there, even being under these conditions which are meant to stifle your own mind and making you a victim of where you are and where you were born and what you're doing and where you live, etc., um, she has her own mind. So she, she, we see her doing these things like living her sexuality freely and chasing after the, the guy who got her pregnant to tell him, to tell him she's pregnant. She goes to this very far off place, very surreal. I love that the camera work in the martial arts scene is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, no, the, the cinematography Oscar is very well earned. <laughs> Say what you want about Alfonso Cuaron. Can the man aim a fucking camera? Like, he just, he does it, like, so well. And you see her being her own woman as she is, or as she, where she is, and the idea that she didn't want it is the, you know, speaking, because she didn't have to say that. She didn't have to say she didn't want the child. So why does she say it? Because she's she's saying that it's more important that this other family is more important to her than her own. Do you think? I I mean this I, is I I think that's the one my problem with Roma is this. It and even though yes it is her own mind and everything it doesn't quite and very much like the help for example you mentioned mm. it is very much ends up saying <laughs> you know this is the system and the system is fine and the system is not fine except that in in, uh, in the help you get uh, <clears throat> what's her name wonderful she's wonderful who's in the help come on um, uh, it's Olivia, not Octavia Spencer Octavia. it's Viola Davis and uh, she actually ends up walking out of the system she ends up going and saying, I'm going to... But does she be really? Because she's just going to end up work, working in another house. Well, no. Her resolution is she's going to be a writer. She leaves that house. We don't know what happens then. Mm -hmm. But she leaves the house saying, I guess I'm going to have to tell my own story now. Yes. <coughs> I guess I'm going to have to... Yeah, but the help is still, like, still a white saver story. It's definitely go there. But, yeah. but uh, what I was going... It, it, yeah, Ro Roma in the end ends up saying, this is the system. Because Cleo does not leave the house saying, I'm going to be a writer now. No. Uh, Cleo very much stays there. And she very much... and. Again, you know, I think for her to have a child would be because she helps uh, the mom to with her children. She's not. Gonna, she's going to have to raise her child and someone else's. Yeah. She and and she and the the kid is. I mean, she's is he's not going to get his own room. He's not going to. The the difference is going to become obvious. It's going to be very apparent. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I I agree uh, with. A lot of several people said that in the end, this uh, what what the the story ends up saying is uh, 
it was better to not shake up the status quo. Um, and and I I think that's what bothers me about Roma. Roma is a very beautiful movie. Roma is shot beautifully and it's acted beautifully. But in the end, it is... In the end, Quaron doesn't have... I don't know the heart the of balls. balls. He doesn't have the balls, balls to, to tell say... a story that is needed. Exactly. He tells the story he wanted to tell. Of course. But he doesn't tell the story that we need to hear. Yeah. But on the other hand, this is hopefully a first step towards telling that story. And towards people of like and I've said this about stand-up, but I like that that stand-up has a lot of people talking and showing their own point of view. And I hope that this means that a lot of that more Mexican people have a chance to tell their own story. And spe- specifically, you know, uh, a woman very much like Cleo uh, can, you know, grow up and say, uh, you know, I want, I want to now hold the camera and not only be in front of the camera. And the idea that also, like, and this is just to close with the, with the story, because I, I really want us to talk about what, what it, this movie did to, to Mexican society. But uh, the idea that... In Mexico, there's there's this um, you know a lot of I have a lot of, um, of feminist friends who go into the you know, gender studies and so on. And there's like the two archety- there's three archetypes that a woman can be in Mexico classically and especially in fiction. She can be a maid, maid as in virgin. She can be a mother and she can be a whore. Yes. Like that's the three things that she gets to be. And we see Cleo refusing all three. And she refuses the one that is most forced upon her, which is motherhood. Even though she was going to have the child, she wasn't going to like to, to get an abortion, she wasn't going to get but she was going to lose the child, but in the end, she feels the need to clarify, I did not want this child. This mother thing, I did not want it for whatever reason. And it's a, I think very important, in spite of all the flaws that you've mentioned, which I believe are very true and very very valid, to see a woman like Cleo, who looks like Cleo who does what Cleo does, look at motherhood and say, not for me, thank you. To be happy, genuinely happy. She was happy when she lost the child, a part of her. She was also heartbroken. Of course. But she was, she was okay with it. She was okay with it. Yeah, she came to terms with it. She came to terms with it. Yeah, she wasn't happy as an, oh, I'm jumping up and down. And closing the subject so we can talk about uh, what this movie did to Mexico without this going into the 90 minute mark. Yes. Uh, so what did this movie do to Mexico? It did awful things to Mexico, now that you mentioned what it. What did it did spank him? Like, you're a no, bad boy, no, Mexico. No, I think, here's the thing. I, I say this all the time, like, my boyfriend is sick of me saying this. But every time we see a piece of Mexican fiction, I have this white person versus brown person counter in my head. And I go, oh, white people, white people, white people, white people. The other day, I went to see this play... Who is supposed to be, you know, it's, it's an American play, but it's supposed to be Mexican characters, all white people. Like, boy, do we, love, do we love white people here. And finally, finally, and this is not a mixed race kind of thing. Like, Yalitza Aparicio looks because she is. is. No, yeah, but looks because she is in the idea that, because I was mentioning before, that very frequently the maids and the, the brown-skinned people in... Uh, in Mexican fiction. fiction, they're not actually really indigenous. They're clearly a mix. So it's like brown, but not too brown. Let's have them not be too brown. Like if you saw The House of Flowers, the maid is pretty much mostly white. 
She does have yeah, a bit of a Although she's mix. never implied to be anything else than in the House of Flowers. Um, but yeah, and then... But yeah, like, even, like, even, for example, even Gael Garcia Bernal, who was the brown uh, main character yeah. for a while, uh, he... He's white. Let's just call it like it is. He's a white guy. Gael Garcia is a white guy. Um, so here we have a film that has as its main character a woman of colour who is in, you know, a lower class woman of colour who has things to say and things to do. And <coughs> for me, it was like, we should be celebrating this in spite of its flaws, if only for mere fucking visibility. Yeah, no, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good point and it's totally true. It, as, as much as I can complain about everything else, uh, it did do something that a lot of people said wasn't wasn't like viable, impossible. Yeah, and and I and I do love that this movie, uh, and I think that's why a lot of people in the industry here in Mexico hate it, because uh, it was very much done outside what what we have as a movie industry. I mean, yes. not I mean, of course, of course, we had like a lot of people work in the industry, but um, but it was it, it was it was a movie that wasn't supposed to be able to work. Um, Cuaron, Cuaron, uh, you know, he he didn't have a script. Uh, I think he was nominated for best screenplay, but he he it was, wasn't released theatrically. He, he, he was he was writing as it goes. Like he 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 decided to you go with Netflix, and you know he did it. But he did you know film in film, and he wanted to tell this story. And like a lot of Mexican producers would have said, no, this is not a story that I can sell. And Cuaron said, I don't care if this story is marketable or not. I want to tell this story. Yeah. And, he, and, you know, he partnered with Netflix to tell it. And he did everything he needed to do in order to tell it. Actually, uh, I did. I used to work in film production, so I actually did help with uh, a couple of days of shooting in, in, in this movie. Are um, you serious? Yes. And the, the scene where they walk through uh, 70s... Uh, the Insurgente Street, it's one very short uh, film, but they remade that part of Insurgente because it doesn't look like that anymore. Yeah, no, it was... And I was yeah. there just shouting at extras to move. Are you serious? Uh, yes. Oh, my God. I would never lie to Why you. Why did myself. you not tell me this before? Uh, I don't know. I suppose it never came up in conversation. Uh, but, very again, this was very much a movie that was supposed to be, quote-unquote, impossible, and that... Here in Mexico, you're supposed to be wanting one of three or four main actresses for your movies. And you're supposed to make your movies for those actresses. And they're all white, by the way. And they're all white. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, you know. In a country, let's, they make can tend. Clear. let's make it clear just for the... Because maybe if you're listening from the States, like, well, they're white. The United States is 70-ish percent white. Mexico is 10% white. So the yes. idea that white people dominate the media in the way that they do when they're actually very much a minority. We're talking there's more, there's more the, left-handed people than white people in this country. Wow. It's true. Think about think of it this that. way. How's the representation for left-handed people in media? Well, no, there's no representation because nobody ever thinks about it. Nobody, Unless it's a plot point. But the, the whole point is... What about Ned Flanders, Luis Augusto? <laughs> no, but what, what we're going to say is that this movie was very much a thing that was, wasn't supposed to be a doable and be mar marketable. And Cuaron just said, I don't care. And that's why, you know, a lot of uh, people here are kind of weirdly reacting to Yalitza, the, the actress... In that I, they're complaining, you know, she, she wasn't trained as an actress, she was blah, blah, blah. But in the end, I think Quaron couldn't have done this movie 
with anyone other than a person that hadn't been already taught all the biases of a brown person in, in popular media because you can see it when they they, they, they go when the, they go on for a camera they immediately become the stereotype they have learned uh, gives them a paycheck he did a blank slate of sorts exactly yeah. and he found it in, in, in Yalitza and, I'm gonna tell and you it's this. really annoying that also that people don't realize that there's a difference between the actress and the character they don't they will be like, oh, Jalitza, she's like, oh, she looks so nice. It's not, the, she's a yes. different person. Yes. But here's the thing. People, first of all, that criticism of, she's not trained, you know, she's not a trained actress. It's like, well, you know, I think the answer to that is very simple. Fuck you. Because <laughs> how many times have we seen actors who have never been trained and then they run into this director who is a consummated you know, director with this trajectory of knowing how to direct people. And hey, directors have to work with newcomers all the time. Nobody said that about the little kid from the Sixth Sense getting uh, his... I don't know if it was an Oscar or, or a Golden Globe nomination. It was nomination. an Oscar nomination he, and I, probably also Golden Globe. For Globes. Best Supporting Actor or Best yes. Actor, yeah. So he got an Oscar nomination and it was like, but he is not trained. Well, no, he's not because he's 11. And people are new- newcomers all the time. The fact that you're doing work with a camera means that you are doing a job. You have to get the shots right. It's not like, Guaron, just place her in there as a, just be yourself and I will build the movie around you. Guaron doesn't do that. His movies are very well calculated, very well constructed, and that means there was directorial action in there. And that means there was an actress following the direction. And if there is another definition for actress other than person who pretends to be someone they're not under the direction of some cunt, then that, I don't know. <laughs> That's the definition. So this is just people nitpicking at Yalitza Aparicio trying to discredit her. I think there is a campaign trying to discredit her because for many people, because of the reasons we discussed at the beginning of the show, for many people, seeing someone who looks like Yalitza Aparicio wearing gorgeous couture, looking like a million dollars, you know, tripping the line fantastic, walking the red carpet is impossible. It generates like this. It's kind of like when, when people... It's, it's world-breaking. It's, it's world-breaking. And yeah. I I am going to uh, interrupt here because I think one of the reasons they do it, like they, they say envy, they say racism, but I also think it's the fact, I, I say world-breaking because for a lot of these people, they were taught that, uh, and not only them, like also, you know, you and I, but this idea like, like, no matter how bad it was for us, we were always going to be able to have that before them. Yes. Um, and Yalitza Aparicio, uh, getting, you know, getting to be the main, the main actress in a movie and then this movie being successful and then this movie becoming a worldwide and phenomenon. People liking it and liking her. Yeah. And then her getting, you know, to be on Vogue and then her getting, you know, we were, taught that no matter how bad we had it we were never gonna you were you know we're always going to be one step ahead and she, she in in a way she it's this feeling of she skipped the line she was yes. not she's not supposed she's to cheating. be there yes. she she yeah exactly that she cheated she's uh this is not a and that's why they want to they want to spread like they say like she's not a real actress blah 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 blah, blah. when when in the end it's like um we should, you know, or rather, I think the thing we should learn from her is that we should be happy for her. We should be happy 
for uh, not even not even as kind of like us Mexicans, but really this is a person who you know she was there at the right moment. She did the casting, you know, because she did the same casting like a lot of actors. She got lucky, probably like a lot of people get yeah. lucky, and yeah. you know she got. She, I mean. Guaran did a lot of screen work before shooting a movie with her. You know, she she is she is now whatever you may think of her. She is now an actress, an actress who has done who has done beautiful work. Um, and if you're just gonna look at that and be angry and be, you know, this question of why isn't it me? The memes, the memes, and the jokes. I this stayed movie, away from all memes. This movie, related. for all the faults that it has, the worst thing about this movie was everything about it that wasn't it. People's reaction to it. People started using Cleo as a euphemism for a brown-skinned woman. Like, Ivan dos Cleos. Like, look at those two Cleos walking down the street. Like, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was horrible that just watching, seeing someone, you know, seeing someone, seeing an indigenous woman a, a proud indigenous woman who is happy to have the heritage, who is not ashamed of her heritage at all, who doesn't consider herself a token minority. She just considers herself to be what she is. And having people respond so violently, so awful, it's such a shame that by doing something that we were not ready for doing, we confirmed as a society that we were not ready for it. She should have been welcomed. She should have been celebrated. She should have been... But she, I mean, the thing is, it is never going to be, like, a, a complete... Like, even nowadays, in any country you mentioned, like, you know, uh, uh, France with the World Cup last year, you know, like, there was a lot of racism with a lot of... So... But this was different. Like, do you remember when Halle yeah, Berry won but, her Oscar? Yes. Do you remember there being such a negative response to that? I'm pretty sure if you looked for it, you would find it. I don't know who you're following on but Twitter. But so mainstream. I'm kind of happy. No, but so mainstream. Here's the, the thing I is think Halle was at a time where the conversation was uh, was more... But like when Lupita Nyong'o and the, there was that year with 12 Years of Slave where several African-American actors had nominations and like that was where a lot of... Uh, were, were the, this, this anti, this, let's call it, uh, this, uh, I don't want to call it supremacist, but this sentiment of white people feeling that they were told, uh, you're not allowed to be quote unquote proud anymore. Right. Um, oh God. Yeah. yeah I, 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 yeah, I think that sentiment is way more mainstream, like you mentioned here in Mexico, uh, to, well, a, more, more to, to a worrying degree and yeah. who says it and how they say it, it's very, it's very worrying. But also, this is a thing that it already happened. Yeah. And it's also a thing like, there's so many Mexican directors have, that have tried to emulate emulate Hollywood in order to get a, a, an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. So it's a kind of a, a, a wonderful shot and fright for me to, that the movie that gets it is the movie that says, I don't give a shit about Hollywood. I'm going to do my own movie. Because in yeah. the end, the creative person is the person that does that. that you know, they want to do... Yes, I know. Also, because in a, in, in a certain way, Roma is the most Mexican kind of Oscar bait. Um, it's yeah, it's for I mean Oscar bait. I mean, in the end, the Oscars <clears throat> the Oscars are a commercial product, and yeah. they have a commercial formula, and some things work for it. But the the thing is that here's the thing about Roma: everyone loved it. Everyone loved the movie, like internationally. Everyone was just like the Golden Globes and the Oscars and the blah blah blah. There's so many things and. People here in Mexico, they, they're so afraid of 
having this be true. So many people are so, they just hate the fact that someone, as you say, you said it so well, like they, they, it, it, it threatens their whole worldview. It's like, kind of like this story they tell us, I don't even know if this was true, probably not, but the idea that when um, the Spaniards first came to Mexico, they arrived wearing suits of armor and on horses, and the idea that people thought it was a creature, like the horse and the and the conquistador and, the, and the, everything was a whole thing because they had never seen something like this. It's kind of like that. People are looking at Yalitza Aparicio on the cover of magazines, looking amazing, and they're still going like, "But she's ugly." It's like she's, she's not. Ugly. Or, or one of, or, or, or the, or the lesser version of that. It's like she should be wearing traditional Mexican clothing. It's like, well, you know, she's kind of dressed like any other. Any other Mexican woman will be dressed in the cover of Vogue, you know. Uh, and you know, there's been some good dresses. There's been some bad dresses with it, like with any like other. Like with everyone. With like with any other actress. Um, I also, I also, this thing with uh, with Roma and and you and what you said like and anyone like in fi the film world totally uh, loved this movie. And I also think that it's very telling that people don't understand that the mainstream in Mexico is kind of falling behind when it comes to a lot of issues. And, yeah, we've had uh, Iñárritu and we've had uh, Alfonso Cuarón and we've had uh, Del Toro win for Best Director and have some make some beautiful movies. But what people also don't see is that you, these are three directors that kind of had to leave Mexico in order to really have the vision that... The, in order to show the vision that they wanted to show because here in Mexico they, they wouldn't let them thrive. Cuaron was kicked out of uh, Quec, which was the film school for the UNAM because he <laughs> did an English short. He yeah. was kicked out and then he moved to the US and he started and, it's, and he started uh, directing he directed a lot of movies I love like uh, A Little Princess yeah. and Gravity is also a great movie. He directed and, a Harry Potter film didn't he? He did the third movie the third which I find one, one to be probably the best if, yeah. yeah for me it's, it's if not the best uh, top two. Yeah. Um, and and Guillermo del Toro also started doing his weird, quirky cinema here in Mexico, but he didn't find an audience until he, he was cold. He was very much... Uh, didn't he do Cronos? He did Cronos. Cronos, which is wonderful body horror yeah. Mexican film, beautiful science fiction. And If you want to know more about Cronos and you can't find the movie, uh, The Maven of the Eventide did a review of Cronos, which is really good. Look for it on YouTube. Not only did he go to the US, he also went to Spain. He did uh, The Devil's El Espinazo del Diablo. I forget the English uh, Yeah, I don't remember uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which yeah. was a beautiful movie. And it's amazing how we, like, we're very willing to welcome back those people that we didn't give the tools to thrive here in Mexico, but they showed... Uh, out once they were outside, they showed they had it. So it's like, oh, well, that, oh, he's totally Mexican, and he's Mexican. You know, like when he, when when Del Toro and the Oscars, they asked him like, how have you had this approach to death and whatever? And he's like, because I'm Mexican. Now we're proud of him, but the industry just didn't want to give him the tools to thrive here. And Iñárritu did have uh, a couple good movies when he was here uh, and very like expensive movies he had uh, Amores Perros and then he had, he had another movie before 21 no he did, had Amores Perros and he had 21 Grams and then he did Babel the third, the three movies of three stories that, yes. that, but 21, 21 Grams was already uh, in the Hollywood system uh, but again uh, Iñárritu it's not that Iñárritu didn't have 
the vision in him to do Babel while he was in Mexico. It's just that here in Mexico, A, we don't have the industry as far as far uh, as developed. As developed yeah. uh, but also B, here in Mexico, we don't seem to trust ourselves, our yeah. own creative people to thrive. And we don't seem to trust, and this is something else, that, that and, and regrettably, and I'm so sorry to say that Corona was right here, but we don't seem to trust our audiences either. Like, can you trust a Mexican audience to watch a film that is different and that is proposing things and is trying something new. Like, what is the most successful completely Mexican movie of the last 10 years? Probably Nosotros los Nobles. Yes, it is. You know, the, I don't remember the, the title of the family uh, in English. I forget, but it's The like Noble we, Family or we, something. Yeah, like probably. Like, yeah. it's We so, the Rich People. And it's essentially a, you know, a copy of so many better films in the US like Trading Places you know with um, Dan Aykroyd and and Eddie Murphy in the 80s and so on like the idea of yeah. a rich person suddenly becoming poor and it's a commentary on classism but it's also a very safe commentary on classism and it makes caricatures of everyone who is not of that and the heroes end up being you know the, the rich white people like the yeah people. you do have a, a, a supporting cast of they people they end up redeeming themselves yeah um it's it's that movie. It's it's funny because it's a remake of a Mexican movie, uh, okay. El Gran Calavera. As you say, it's a very safe movie. It's a very and and I really know it right now that we get, we're getting a lot of like quote unquote safe romantic comedies here in Mexico yeah. because here in Mexico they have the belief that comedy is easy supposedly and supposedly it's also cheap and it is cheaper than you know an action movie. Uh, but yeah, like you, what you're saying, you ha- you. They don't trust the audience. And you you see this a lot of producers. They say, like, no, people won't sell this movie. And it's kind of a a self-fulfilling prophecy because then they won't give the movie uh, a, a, you know, the marketing push it needs to be seen. Uh, And on on the one hand, I do think the good thing about Roma, another good thing about Roma, is that it kind of put a, it lit a fire under producers' asses and be like, yeah, you can do something different, but then you have to be proud of that yeah. and sell it and be like, come watch this movie. And it's okay if you have the commercial movie that is not meant to change things. Like, I mean, the reason why you get directors getting money to do the weird films is because people just go to the movies. And we do know that the cinema industry is in crisis right now because people are going less and less to the theatres and so on. So, I mean, obviously you need the commercial titles, but you also need, like, a people who, who are proud of the fact that our cinema is weird and strange and it has new things to offer. And we should be proud of this because it's like, why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be? Why, why would you expect to get a Julia Roberts film when you can also get, uh, you know, something different? You can get a Roma or you can get uh, uh, Amores Perros or you can get, uh, you know, like... Yeah, it was Amores Perros, right? Amores Perros yeah. was in yeah. like, It was the, these strange films that, you know, we can start to build a Mexican school of cinema. Like, other countries have their school of cinema. And if you go to Japan, you get these movies that are just completely commercial, they're completely rubbish. But there is a Japanese school of cinema with its aesthetic and with its music and with its use of camera. And why can't we just say... Yeah, of course, both. there's space for both, and there's people wanting to do both. And, you know, as in everything, you know, there's people wanting to do weirder comedies, people wanting to do more, you know... uh, "Quote unquote commercial comedy." Um, f- for me, uh, I, I what I 
what I hope uh, Roma will do is not only uh, get weirder or I wouldn't I shouldn't say weirder uh, more different cinema uh, and get more people excited to to see more different cinema but also to be like you know uh, there are stories here in Mexico worth telling and there are stories worth listening to and there are stories worth watching and they're not all the same story we've been telling for the past uh, however long Televisa has been working, which is, you know, the poor little rich girl who, the poor, the poor little girl who marries rich or, um. Yeah, the old stereotypes. Exactly. Yeah. It's just an exercise in humility. Being as an audience, being an audience that is willing to just sit down and let something new happen to you through a film. Because if you're just trying to make it fit, into what you believe should be true, then you get what happened with Roma. You get people reacting very violently. There was also a lot of positive reaction. Let's just mention that as well. But you get people reacting with this you know, resistance like that. You can't, you can't do that. And if, if you give an award to, to this movie, it's just because, oh, oh, they were inclusive. They're just trying to be politically correct. It's like, no, they're not. I mean, there is obviously a level of that, but it's also a wonderful film. It's well done. It's good. So you know, why can't you just let, let that movie be and be happy with it and be proud of it? And, you know, the, the one thing I'm happy is, like, it, I, don't, I, I don't know if you saw uh, Yalitza Aparicio, maybe we, we could finish with this. Yalitza Aparicio spoke at the UN. Um, I, I haven't seen that. A couple of weeks ago or something like that. And she was talking about how you, you know, she's so happy that now there are so many women in this country who are going to see her and the movie and they're going to go, huh, that's an option. And that's how you start. I mean, that's how it starts. It is. Yeah. It is. So. With that being said, we have reached the end of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, I, any, I didn't see the UN thing, but I saw her, her thing at Sesame Street. What? She was on Sesame Street? She was in Sesame Street, the Mexican Sesame Street, with the little fairy character whose name I forget. And oh she was saying, God. if you can dream it, you can make it. Uh, yeah, that's one. I'm not gonna. I'm not telling and behind that message. Yeah, because I've dreamt about a lot of things, Jalitza. You've, you've dreamt. I've dreamt. I've written these fanfics, and I don't think. Where were you? Where were you, Jalitza Fairy? Where were you when I was dreaming that I could fuck a half tiger, half half man hybrid? You know. Where were you? Oh, you. So you have read my do fanfics. You, do you ever think about that? You know, do you ever think?